Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Joining us on the other side of the mic are our guests, Jesse Walden and Lee Jin, general partners at Variant. And today we're going to be discussing the firm's new founder fellowship program, as well as some of the trends they see shaping crypto's venture capital landscape. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I want to thank our guests, Jesse and Lee, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Frank. It's great to be here. It's our pleasure to have you on this beautiful day. So walk us through this new fellowship. What is it and why are you launching it? Sure. So we're really excited to be announcing this new founder fellowship. Um, It's a three-month-long cohort-based educational program designed for founders in crypto at the earliest stages of their journey. And the reason why we are putting together this fellowship is because as early-stage specialist investors in crypto, we really wanted to use our resources and our expertise to catalyze more innovation in the crypto space. And so we're inviting early stage founders to come build and learn alongside our portfolio founders. The core of the programming for the fellowship is going to be something that we call the Variant Network, which we're really investing a lot into this year. It's basically a professional network comprised of our portfolio founders where they are engaged in peer-based, network-based learning. Um, They're sharing playbooks and emerging best practices with each other. And we found that this kind of network-based learning model has been really effective in an industry as nascent as crypto. And so all of the founder fellows are going to be able to participate in the variant network alongside our portfolio founders. 
And then on top of that, there's going to be specially designed sessions that are particularly relevant to emerging founders, including topics like fundraising or web free business models, hiring and recruiting, et cetera. And then throughout the process, founder fellows are going to be able to tap into the expertise of the team, domain experts, as well as our portfolio founders. So yeah, we're really excited about this. Um, I'll just call out a few logistical things. Um, it's really designed for founders at all layers of the crypto stack. So this isn't just a consumer founder fellowship. We're really looking for anyone who is looking to build something meaningful in Web3. So infrastructure builders, DeFi builders, they're all invited to apply. This is not a crypto 101 course, by the way. We're really looking for founders who have strong intention to really start something, um, ideally either pre-seed or earlier. And then applications are open now on our website, variant.fund, um, for anyone to apply. The program is going to run from June through August of this year. It's going to be entirely remote, but people have to be available on U.S. Eastern time. And the program is entirely free. So we're not going to be taking a stake in any of the companies that go through the fellowship. We really felt like this was the most founder-friendly approach. Interesting. And so what type of companies, I mean, is it just the whole breadth and scope of crypto and Web3? What does the wave of entrepreneurs look like that you're kind of weeding through? Yeah, well, we're not going to be prescriptive with the specific, you know, ideas that we're going to be looking for. We really invite any emerging founders who are working on an idea or have a prototype to apply as long as they're working in crypto. So this includes, you know, every layer of the stack, people who are working on new infrastructure or new developer tools to new DeFi primitives and financial marketplaces all the way through to consumer applications, which could include things like decentralized social networks or new types of NFT marketplaces or new wallet applications. Um, so it's it's really open to any and all crypto builders. Yeah, and I'm, I might add, it, I think the intent here is sort of to reflect um, sort of the, the expertise we have in our portfolio network. So we mentioned the uh, fellowship is structured around the variant network programming that we already are doing with the founders and the leaders of the companies in our portfolio. And we do invest across this full stack. So, um, you know, if, if you look at our portfolio on our website, you can see there's a lot of projects at, you know, we're building low level infrastructure, you know, new blockchains, um, you know, MEV uh, solutions like Flashbots, and, and then, mm -hmm. you know, DeFi marketplaces and, and, and all the way up to end user applications. So, the, the idea, again, is to sort of, you know, foster the pure learning that's already going on in our portfolio and extend that to sort of the next cohort, next wave of entrepreneurs who are just getting started in this space and help them learn from each other and accelerate, um, you know, their understanding of best practices, which in our view um, come that, you know, more, most directly from practitioners, the people actually building and, and pushing the bleeding edge of the space. I was out to drinks last night with a venture capitalist in crypto. And we were discussing the market, the state of things, as it were. He said to me, and I thought it was pretty astute, um, you know, when we got into the market in 2017, it was comprised mostly of people who had just gotten somewhere or were somewhere at the right place in the right time versus a deep, deep technical or knowledge base or set of skills. 
Um, maybe we were just projecting. Um, but now it seems like the the caliber and level of entrepreneur in in the space, even despite the mania and chaos of the prior year, the caliber of entrepreneur seems to have increased or is increasing. Is is that your experience? Definitely. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that remark. Um, obviously, it's not been entirely smooth sailing over the last year or so. But what has held constant in our experience as investors in this space is that the caliber and the quality of entrepreneurs entering into crypto keeps being elevated. Um, we're seeing really experienced builders who have really deep domain expertise or really deep technical skills starting companies, um, people who have really high conviction, people who are doing really their life's work and are very mission driven. Um, and those are the types of founders that we really love backing. And we, we'd love to see more of that. And that was the genesis of this founder fellowship. Yeah, and I, I can speak to this also from personal experience. I got started in the space as a founder in 2014. Um, and, and at that time, you were one of the ones with deep technical expertise. Maybe. I, I appreciate you saying that. I would argue that, you know, I was a first time founder and, and um, you know, that's not to say first time founders are necessarily inexperienced, but but I would say I was inexperienced as, as a first time founder back then. And and, and we, my, my larger point is that, you know, you could count on two hands the number of venture backed startups um, that were building sort of non financial applications in the space at that time. And, and so just by sheer, just if you look at the sheer volume, you know, um, it's, it's obviously rapidly accelerated. The number of founders jumping in and starting new things in the space has grown tremendously through each cycle. Um, and, and with that, the quality bar has also increased. So, um, you know, just empirically, my own experience, you know, when I was building um, as a founder, looking around, there, there were very few peers who had more experience than I did as a first time founder today. That's not the case. We have lots of founders in our portfolio who are, you know, second time, third time founders, um, folks who who have really deep, you know, domain specific backgrounds that lend themselves well to, to what they're building. Um, so yeah, it's just a totally different bar, and and that's why we take this sort of portfolio focused approach to, um, you know, both supporting our portfolio and the extending it to the fellowship is the expertise, the real experts in the space are the people building stuff today. So why are you launching it now? As a firm, you know, we've grown our team. We've also grown the portfolio over the last, you know, we've been around now two and a half years. Um, so we have a meaningful portfolio and, and the team to execute something like this, which was just not, not the case um, even like a year ago. Um, so we've been really ramping up on the, the variant network activity in the portfolio that has benefited from the network effect of having, you know, a, a sizable portfolio now that's a little bit more mature. And, and the result is, you know, we're able to sort of append onto that this fellowship program and sort of extend what we're doing to to a new cohort of people that we hope to pull into the network at, at some point, either by having them start something that we later invest in or, you know, join something in our portfolio um, that, that they get exposure to through the fellowship. So it's just been a matter of building the firm, building the portfolio and sort of activating the network effects therein to produce something like this. We've honestly been talking about launching a founder fellowship or this kind of educational cohort based program for so long. I think we first came up with the idea for doing something like this maybe two years ago, and it's really been in the works for that long. 
um, both Jesse and I have undertaken various educational endeavors in the ecosystem before. I've mm. taught a cohort-based program before about the creator economy. Jesse, you know, was one of the people at A16Z who was critical to the inception of the crypto startup school there. Um, so we've both done sort of similar-ish endeavors before where we've brought people together to learn from each other and to learn from us. Um, and so I don't think of this as like a, you know, all of a sudden, like the timing is right for this. It's, it's really something that has been in the works for a really long time. And then I think that now is actually a really particularly amazing moment to launch something like this, because what we're seeing is that obviously it hasn't really been smooth sailing for a lot of crypto founders in the last year. There's been a lot of market turmoil but we remain really high in our conviction level in crypto. And we also really still continue to be very confident in the potential for crypto to realize a more fair and meritocratic internet, one where users can actually become owners of products that they're using. And we feel like now is a particularly helpful moment where we can help bring those ideas to market and help give founders that extra boost when perhaps there's more skepticism coming from outside. Mm. When you think about the skepticism that comes from outside, what example of a product or company or founder can you point to that illustrates the extent to which crypto can revolutionize various components of the Web2 internet? Sure. So I think there's so many ideas out there where I think crypto can be really revolutionary of different types of products and services that people are using. One area that I uh, have been spending a lot of time thinking about is social networking. I think social networking is a topic that is pretty top of mind right now for a lot of people because it feels like we're reaching this tipping point where a lot of consumers and users realize that our data and our social connections and all of our content have really been monopolized for the last decade and a half by a handful of social media companies. And I think recent events have shown that at any point in time, for any reason, they're able to potentially lose all of that social capital that they've built up and invested in for for many years. And so this is an area where I think there's really potential to build something better on crypto rails using crypto primitives. Um, For instance, we're investors in Lens Protocol, which is a decentralized social networking protocol. I got to get on there. The intern has um, fintech intern dot lens. I haven't I haven't done it yet. Is it is it nice? I gotta let's maybe I'll check it out right now. <laughs> well, the, the the question is what it what what is it? And it's I, I, Lee is about to explain this. I think, but what's cool is you can sort of access the, the network from like a, a bunch of different interfaces um, yeah. that all provide like different you know kind of custom experiences. So you can really you know. You, everyone can have their own bespoke experience on Lens, I think is, is something that's pretty cool about it. Right. And so the architecture of Lens protocol is that all of users' content, their social connections, who they follow, who follows them, their profiles are NFTs. And so that means they're on chain. You can take them with you to various interfaces. And for me, an aha moment when I first started using different Lens applications was that I could post from one app that was built on top of Lens protocol and then see that post from a different application that was also built on Lens. And so everything travels with you. That is such a sea change from how social works today. And I think that's a really powerful idea, especially for 
users who have experienced the risk of, you know, deplatforming or realize that if their account was suspended, they just couldn't reach any of their followers anymore. Yeah, or who knows if the social platform of your liking is going to get snapped up by a billionaire who implements these random features that you don't like every day. Precisely. I don't yeah. care how many people bookmark my tweets. <laughs> changing everything so much. Yeah. There's a couple other examples beyond sort of social at different layers on the stack. Like in, in DeFi, one I often point to is um, Uniswap and stable coins. Um, you know, there's there's Circle and Uniswap put out this this great report um, demonstrating that, you know, there's there's a big demand for using stable coins for remittances. And Uniswap is sort of a, an, has been an on-ramp for people to convert you know, crypto into fiat to send all over the world and that that's actually, you know, significantly cheaper than alternatives available elsewhere. So, so that's another sort of use case that's that's working right now in, in DeFi that's, you know, not speculative, very you know, utilitarian um, and better versus the, the sort of more extractive legacy alternatives to remittances. Um, and then lower down the stack, this is this is something that's much more emergent and, and more in the weeds. So I only use this example with, um, with, with people who are, you know, sort of interested in space or, or, or deeper in finance. And that is MEV as, as a category um, that, that's sort of emerging. MEV is a minor extractable value, mm. not probably not worth getting into explaining exactly what it is, but, but in, in short, um, one of the, the compelling things that's um, exciting here is that there's, there's tools being developed that allow users to capture value that's sort of emanating from the, the transactions they're putting on the blockchain that, that miners are actually the invisible tax. Yes, there's there's this well, there's transaction fees to do stuff on on blockchains, and in short, there's new technology emerging that allows users to capture back some of the value of their transactions and sort of uh, be, be the direct beneficiary of this. And, and I think the best analogy is um, in traditional finance on you know apps like Robinhood. They have these arrangements with hedge funds, you know, that pay for the order flow from retail users. And, and essentially, you know, the, the hedge funds are benefiting from getting out in front of retail, um, the, the, the retail users' trades. What people are working on in um, the MEV world today is um, sort of similar construct, but where the value that would otherwise go to hedge funds can, can be routed back to, to users and the applications that they're interfacing uh, with the blockchain through. So that's, that's exciting. It's a very emergent category, but there's definitely a potential for a more sort of transparent and fair outcome if the right things get adopted. And that's something that we've been very active in, in trying to steer and work with, with our portfolio on. I'll throw out another idea that we'd love to see folks apply with, or we'd love to see in general. So I have this emerging hypothesis that there can be new types of marketplaces that exist because of crypto and Web3 that weren't able to viably exist in Web2. So as background, I spent many years investing in Web2 marketplaces when I was at Andreessen Horowitz, met probably thousands of marketplace companies there. And over the years, what I observed was that there were just a ton of great ideas, like marketplaces that should exist. They were facilitating a transaction that should happen, but they just couldn't viably exist as businesses, maybe because the bootstrapping costs to get to those network effects were too high and capital intensive, or because they were building a managed marketplace and the operational costs of like the value out that they were trying to provide to every transaction 
was just too cost intensive for the unit economics to work. And I think that can change in Web3 um, through a manner of different ways. One is mm. through the tokens being a bootstrapping mechanism. Um, we've you know written about this where token incentives can help get a marketplace off the ground and get to those network effects without a huge expenditure of capital. But secondly, I think this is a, a relatively underexplored idea, but the types of value add services that manage marketplaces for providing to users, for instance, um, potentially like creating trust by vetting supply or interviewing supply and making sure that they were, you know, credible people. Um, those credentials could exist on chain such that different marketplaces don't need to reinvest in the cost of revetting the supply every single time they go to a new marketplace. So to illustrate this, every time a new driver signs up for Uber or Lyft, each of those companies spends about $50 running a background check on that driver to make sure you know that they're not a criminal or whatever. That's duplicate cost. Imagine if that credential that you're a trustworthy driver could just exist on chain and different marketplaces could pull from that information. That dramatically reduces the cost structure of servicing one of these transactions and means that there can be new types of marketplaces that are actually able to be profitable in Web3 that just couldn't viably exist in Web2. Um, one example of this is like, I think childcare marketplaces in Web2, like great idea, like parents all need childcare, but the cost of vetting that supply and then creating that wedge between the price that parents paid versus the, the take home pay that the suppliers would get, it meant that there was too big of a gap there. And I think Web3 can change that. So anyways, I think there's there's new types of marketplaces that we can now see emerge that just weren't possible before. Is this the article you wrote that addressed sort of the inefficiencies of like retroactive airdropping? I don't know if you wrote it, Jesse. We, we wrote it, but, but this, right. is, this is kind of different. Yeah, yeah this is a different idea. Um, we've written a few pieces about token incentives and um, the efficacy of spending on different types of incentives. This is this is a new idea that I haven't written about before. So mm. listeners are getting it for the first time here. This is interesting. How can we improve just token models in general, the way that they've kind of typically have operated? Or maybe just airdrops specifically? Yeah, I I have written about this topic a little bit. So... I think, um, you know, the way in which airdrops have historically functioned to date is usually as like a either a one-time retroactive airdrop to all historical users. Did you guys get a big ARB bag? We're not we're not ARB invest arbitrum investors, so no, yeah. no, not invariant. But but you know, on our uh, on our research wallets where we do weird crypto things, you know, maybe maybe <laughs> have to check. Yeah. So either they're like, you know, one-time retroactive airdrops to everyone, or they're kind of known liquidity mining programs where you sort of can mm -hmm. calculate how much you're going to get in token rewards if you do a particular thing. And both of those have been suboptimal because they're very easily gameable and they create a lot of extrinsic incentives for people to participate. And that extrinsic incentive perhaps crowds out the intrinsic motivation to use a product. Um, 
And one of the ideas that I published on Twitter recently was challenging us to actually move towards a model of thinking about um, tokens almost as like taking inspiration from Web2 incentive programs where rewards or loyalty points are granted to users who are already engaging in, a diff in different types of behaviors as a catalyst to get them to that next level of engagement or next level of being a power user versus like creating an incentive to use something despite the fact that you didn't actually care about using the product. So for instance, like, you know, the DoorDash new customer rewards program or the, the new Dasher um, guarantees for drivers, like those are predicated on taking a specific set of actions that indicate that the user already has developed a habit or has already found value in the product. And that's when you, you target the incentive to really level up that user's engagement. I think token incentives ought to like take inspiration from that and basically move towards this model of honing in on users who already have product market fit, but where they can really benefit from that extra boost to level up. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's final. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. It's just so easy, you know, you you get the airdrop and you just want to sell it. There's no incentive to to keep it unless you're a power user. So it's like if if you've used it historically, once you get the airdrop, you're most likely going to sell. That's what most people, you know, 
are yeah. keen to do. But I think I think it's important to, to note, like a lot of. So I think that's right, and a lot of um, a lot of people have jumped to the conclusion that because most people most recipients of airdrops sell immediately, that that airdrops are kind of not the the right idea. And I actually think that's that's not the right conclusion to draw. So it's important to to note that like there's a distinction between you know people who um, you know need to convert ownership into income, right? They they get an asset that a lot you know is is a ownership of the underlying platform or product that they're using, um, and and then they need to sell that to pay their bills, right? And like that that's fine, right? It doesn't necessarily signal that um, they don't care at all about the project. Certainly, there's some users who don't care and they're just airdrop farming, but there there are other users who you know genuinely you know care about the product, use it, love it, but need to sell the airdrop to pay their bills. And and so I think the right takeaway is not that you know, airdrops are a category error because people sell them, but rather you, you need you just need to be a little more scrupulous in identifying the users who are actively using the product over time, and and whether they sell or not is is kind of you know not even the right question to to be asking. So. I mean, but this, I mean, this is probably one of the most, one of the most important questions for founders who are thinking about launching a token to unpack. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this will be part of the curriculum. Yeah, definitely. So we're actually doing, um, in, in a few weeks, we're doing a session uh, with a bunch of founders in our portfolio on token distribution design. Because if you get that wrong, Jesse, people will be pissed. Yes, and they will. And they will. Yeah, they will. And it's this is, I, I think you know, the, the space is right to be pissed with a lot of the token distributions that have happened to date because um, they haven't been that carefully designed. I think the you know, mm. it's it's really only been three years since um, you know DeFi summer, not even three years, two and a half years since Compound yeah. launched their their governance token, and that was the, they were the first project to progressively decentralize, make their users owners. And then we got DeFi Summer, where every project did that. Recently, we saw Blur, you know, launch a token. They were the first, you know, I would argue the first like major NFT marketplace to do it in in a in a thoughtful way, and, and they pushed a lot of new ideas that, and you know that I think are are new best practices. So it's only been two and a half years, and like the the um, the, the sort of right way to do airdrops is very much um, still in exper experimentation mode. I, I think one of the things that we definitely want to pride ourselves on. And, and help our founders with is trying to accelerate the, a better understanding of what works and what doesn't work. Um, and so a lot of writing we, we've done on the topic is, is covers that theme. We're, we're actively working with the portfolio who are thinking through, you know, their airdrops right now. Um, and yeah, definitely this will be a topic that we hope, you know, we can accelerate folks in the fellowship on as well. Lee, what are some other topics that you can help them with or aspects of the project design that you might, explore through the fellowship? Yeah. So the specifics of the curriculum are still being nailed down, but um, folks can really expect to hear about a wide range of different topics. Um, for instance, like hiring and recruiting. Yeah, um, we have this, yeah. yeah, we have an amazing advisor to the firm, um, Calder, from, who's the head of talent or head of recruiting at OpenSea. Um, he's been a really helpful advisor to a bunch of our portfolio companies on compensation, running a good recruiting process, et cetera. And this is something that um, I think a lot of first-time founders or emerging founders might not necessarily be as familiar with. We'll also talk about 
Web3 business models, Web3 mm. defensibility. What does defensibility look like in the context of crypto? It's, it's very different than Web2. Regulatory is another big area where we'll be designing a lot of content and doing sessions and pulling in our advisors, Jake Trevinsky and Mark Boron, um, who are experts in that domain. So really everything um, pertaining to starting an early stage company in crypto. Yeah, a few more I would just jump in and add are so developer relations is, is a big one um, mm. in our portfolio, like any, you know, anyone who's building infrastructure, a lot of um, in DeFi projects as well. They want developers to be using their their products and protocols and developer relations is, is a field that has existed, you know, in Web2 for a long time. There's a lot of best practices to learn from there that that apply. And so we're bringing in folks who are, who are domain experts there, you know, helping accelerate what Web3 folks need to know and can learn from Web2 um, developer facing products. Another common, you know, theme in the portfolio is um, onboarding, just, you know, how, how to optimize onboarding flows to get new users into products faster. It's especially important in crypto where you have, you know, these hurdles to getting on board with a new project, like setting up a wallet or get, you know, and getting that wallet funded with, with fiat, you know, in early web two, there, there was this like, you know, explosion moment when people figured out the hamburger menu was the right way to do navigation on mobile. Right. So like suddenly every it became easier to navigate every mobile website because they conform to that sort of design pattern. And I think you know, there's there's got to be similar sort of design patterns that make onboarding to new Web3 apps uh, really intuitive. And so that's another area where we're bringing in experts. We're trying to get folks in um, in our portfolio to share what, what they think are the best practices so that we can ho hopefully try to help accelerate a standard there, too. So, yeah, we're, we're basically trying to cover all the functional areas that you know teams are having to execute on and like not just the founders the, the leadership teams in our portfolio it's it's product it's developer relations it's token design it, it, you know legal compliance right, uh, hiring etc like all the functional areas that's what our network sort of um helps helps with the portfolio and the fellowship sort of can tack on and, and benefit from that too i feel like treasury management has not been emphasized <laughs> enough and yeah. there's like a, a gross lack of not controls per se, but risk management. You hold, you know, but most of the treasury and ETH and maybe some other coins, your native token, and the team's managing it. I mean, there's no outside risk management incorporated and, you know, it just doesn't seem very robust. Yeah. But there's not really that many service providers out there who can do it. Right. I remember years ago, Meltem um, wanted to start a, a treasury management service or firm for you know, all the projects that raise insane amounts of money in ICOs. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you're still doing that, but but yeah, it's I mean, it's a it's a good thing to raise. We were over the last weekend um, or two weekends ago when the SVB sort of crisis came to, came to light. You know, one one of the silver linings. Um, well, actually, there were there were a few silver linings of, of of that sort of moment. One was that in our portfolio, folks were relatively um, okay, and, that, and that's because a couple of weeks earlier we'd gotten wind that SVB was kind of singling out um, crypto companies for like greater compliance scrutiny, and, and we were worried about that. And, and so we, had, at that time, sort of advised our portfolio: you, you should be thinking about diversifying your banks. And so fortunately, the impacts in, in our portfolio were, were pretty limited. 
the bigger silver lining was that this variant network that we've been mentioning throughout the conversation um, was just super active in in helping you know each other all the founders helping each other figure out what to do, what banks to set up, and we we obviously also provided some some guidance on that and introductions. And um, I, I would say just the speed at which people were able to react and and you know specifically because they were engaging each other on like the step by step processes of, of onboarding to these new banks um, and you know dealing with the stablecoin um, uncertainty was just amazing. So like incredible real-time uh, response in, in, in the variant network, which is just really heartening to see. And, and I think, yeah, the, the, the bigger picture here is now, you know, crypto folks, many, many of whom were already skeptical of, you know, traditional financial institutions have to the best of their ability right now, tried to diversify. And it's, you know, we're, we're hoping this is not just the tip of the iceberg phenomenon, but I think even, even if that's the case, you know, I hope that the space is a lot better off than they were a couple of weeks ago to, to weather whatever comes next. Is that an issue for new companies? I mean, are, are startups that are just getting started, maybe they're in a transactional business, is it going to be tough for them to get a banking relationship started? I actually don't think so. I mean, that's not what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Um, there, there's definitely banks that are are leaned in to crypto still mm. um and i think that's that's true not just in in the us where but but also abroad and 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 so there i think there are options is is the bottom line and um you know for bigger players that are, are more established um and are doing really high volume daily transactions the, the absence of you know signature bank and Silvergate is is definitely you know meaningful, but I think already there that's a big opportunity for for others to fill. And so, quite optimistic that you know despite the the, the closure of those two banks, there's there's going to be solutions online fairly soon, even you know to accommodate even the biggest players. So you know at worst it moves offshore is sort of what our current view is on it. Mm. What does the deal flow look like? Well. I think everyone has seen the stats about just venture globally being down in terms of deals and volume. And that also mirrors what we're seeing in crypto. Like it's, it's just a fact that deal volume is down. And so, yeah, it's definitely not as frenetically paced as it was maybe last summer or two, two summers ago, but like the, the quality of the founders that we are meeting still continues to impress us. And so even yeah. as like the, yeah, even as the number perhaps tapers down, the quality of the founders, their thoughtfulness, their level of domain expertise um, and experience, like that continues to really, really impress us. Yeah. And I was, I was just going to say like in 2018, in the last bear market, um, you know, that it, it, we would go like weeks without meeting a team that was, you know, working on something interesting or, or compelling, there was just a dearth of, of ideas and a dearth of founders. And I think that was just because not, not enough people really understood sort of the opportunity of building in Web3. And I, I think today that is very, very different. You know, I think ev everyone working in Silicon Valley, you know, in a big tech company probably knows at least, you know, one or two people who are building something serious in Web3 who are not just in it for, you know, for, for speculation. And so, I think there's just a much broader awareness that there, there is an opportunity here, then that's continuing to pull high quality founders in. 
so while the yes the volume is you know a lot less than you know peak bull market it's it's still um you know an order of magnitude or more um higher volume than the last bear market so that that just maps to the general trend of you know in each cycle the the number of developers jumping in sort of lags the the, the market prices, but on, on net, it's up and to the right. If you zoom out and look at the, you know, the trend over the last like five, 10 years. Yeah. And what I tell our portfolio founders right now is that this is actually such an amazing time to be building in crypto because we have, we are in this moment of time in which they will get super clear signals as to whether their product is actually solving a market need. There's no more, you know, speculative frenzy. There's no more like confusing signals about do people actually want this or are they just speculating on something? So like now is the, the time when they get like the most honest response from their market mm. and their users as to like, does their product actually have product market fit or not? And I think that's very clarifying for a lot of founders. Yeah. And so something I, I think we, we strongly believe at Variant is that, um, you know, Crypto going mainstream is not really the result of um, you know catering crypto to like fit the, the sort of pretext of Web two, but you know, but rather that um, culture sort of moves towards crypto over time, or you know, it's some balance of, of the two to, to be fair. And and so to Lee's point, like building for the folks who are still in the space. Right now, in a bear market, who are still using you know crypto products today for non-speculative reasons, those are the folks who are elucidating the behaviors that everyone else is eventually going to come around to, to doing, um, you know, in, in the next cycle. So that's I, I think an amazing opportunity is is you know get get rid of the noise, like focus on the people who are still here. What new things do they need? And the assumption is that the number of people who are going to need those same things is going to grow a lot more when when folks are paying more attention in the next cycle. I want to hear what you guys think is overrated in crypto and web three, aside from the scoop. <laughs> scoop is definitely underrated. <laughs> um, um, let's see. I mean, I, I have, I have one potential answer. Um, <laughs> I think that PFP projects are overrated. So like, I think eventually NFTs become much more than PFPs like, and yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't even know if that's controversial, but like, I think that all of the current market volume has led some founders to be confused about what the market is that they're ultimately going to serve. And I understand the conundrum, either you're building for the people who are still here today, serving the current trading volume that's here today. Or the alternative path is to like build for who NFT collectors and buyers are going to be in the future, which likely, if everything goes right, looks dramatically different from how it looks today. And so I think PFPs are like, that is where the volume is today. But I think that represents just a small sliver of everything that NFTs are going to represent and become in the future. I like PFPs. <laughs> They're fun. I think I like them I think, too. I They're think like fun. All the weird, like the NFT assets that people think will be in the future. Just like I don't, I don't. What, what am I going to have a wallet with all these like tickets and you know unlocks? Just seems so esoteric. 
Whereas PFPs, it's like it's a picture of a monkey. Clicks, <laughs> you know. I think I think you know, like memes, art, all that stuff is going to be. You're you're going to be able to collect every piece of um, of media on the internet, and you know, collecting is is definitely, in my view, is like the new liking. It's a new like button. Um, I guess I'm just saying, like, I think that like NFT ticketing is. I think that's silly. I I, I happen to agree on ticketing. Um, not a not a use case right now. That I, eventually it will happen. Um, but you know, the ticketing industry is, I think, the blocker there. It's it's probably the most yeah. like monopoly industry there is that it doesn't get any government scrutiny. Um, but but anyhow, that's another a story for another that's day. A story. But um, but but yeah, I, I think the larger point is like, I think every piece of media will be collectible, but the, the interesting thing is like, you, you can program these assets. You can't, you know, you, you can also program JPEGs, but they didn't have any monetary value before. So there's, there's mm. just a really interesting design space there that we haven't really started to explore yet. Um, so I, I, I agree with Lee. Like I, th- I do think current PFP projects, mo- most of them, not all have, have not we'll sort of die. Yeah. Well, they just haven't like, they haven't figured out um, how to, how to like, retain people over time, basically. Um, and then I, I have one other thing that I think is potentially overrated in, in the short term, not mm-hmm. overrated in the long term. And that is um, scalability, like, you know, technical, technical solutions to scalability. Um, that, that's just not the bottleneck right now. Um, I think, you know, the, the, there's plenty of box space on Ethereum. Um, there's plenty of box space in, in, in across the space. Um, what's sort of gating adoption is, is not transaction costs, I don't think, but rather just, just new sort of infrastructure that enables new user behavior. So earlier I mentioned, um, you know, MEV as a category where users can, um, you know, get the value from some of the transactions they're putting on chain back. Well, what if you could, you know, take that to an extreme where users don't have to pay transaction fees anymore? Um, right, like they're getting so much value back from their transaction that the, the transaction was free. That's sort of you know an unlock of a, a kind of like a new user behavior, new user design pattern. <laughs> it's kind of like when the brokerages went to zero commissions. Right, right, exactly. So, like, I think those are the kind of infrastructure unlocks that will will actually catalyze um, you know like new applications, new business models, new use cases for end users, and and that in turn drives the demand that long term creates the need for. Um, you know, more technical scalability, but in the short term, it's more sort of user-centric in- infrastructure that I think is underrated, and you know, technical scalability is is potentially overrated. Well, guys, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to talk with us today. Where can our listeners learn more about the fellowship and what you're working on? Where can they go? Who do they talk to? What Twitter do they follow? <laughs> So the application is live on our website until April 14th. People can check it out at variant.fund. That's our website. Otherwise, I think all of us are reachable on Twitter. All of our DMs are open, so DM us. Lens as well. We're all on Lens. We're all on Farcaster. i got to get on Lens. i got to get on Lens. We're all on Mirror. We're all on Substack. There's lots of ways to reach us. I was on a plane with Stani the other, uh, a few weeks ago. He was sitting in front of me. I try to say hi to him and the dude walked so fast in the airport. I like couldn't catch up. I was like, I'm what, maybe he was running away from me. He might've been running away from me. That could have been it. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thanks for having us again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks.
The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest, or maybe two. Have a great day. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.